0: Welcome back to Bat on Politics. I'm Grace Atwood. And I'm Becca Freeman. And we're so excited. We're back with a new um, Bat on Politics episode. We kind of missed the boat with November, so we're combining November and December together but we have an amazing episode for
1: you and this month we're talking about healthcare so healthcare has definitely been our most requested topic by far and i know personally i find this topic really confusing it's so, so confusing we're very excited to have an expert to help us to break it down and to ask all of our questions too so today we have Margot Sanger Katz, who is a domestic correspondent for The New York Times, where she covers health care for the Upshot, which is the Times site about politics, economics, and everyday life. Hi, Margot. Hi. We are so excited to have you. We have a lot of questions. Thank you so much for doing this. Okay. <laughs> so I mean, oh, it's great to be here. I guess to start, can you talk to us a little bit about why healthcare has become so important in this current election and what changed from 2016
2: to now? Yeah, I mean, I guess I disagree with the premise of that question a little bit. I write about healthcare, so maybe it always seems like the most important issue to me in every election, but I have been covering this issue in politics for quite a while now. And I would say that healthcare has been really important for pretty much the last decade. Uh, if you remember, You know, Barack Obama won election in 2008 with health care as a really important part of his platform. And, of course, the Affordable Care Act was the first big legislative achievement of the Obama administration after the kind of financial crisis stabilization bills. Um, And then after that, we saw Republicans win quite a lot of elections campaigning on Obamacare repeal. I think that was really a very central and unifying uh, agenda for them that helped them win a lot of elections and take majorities in Congress and may have helped President Trump become president. But I think what's changed a lot since 2016 is that even though health care has remained a really important issue, I think the kind of partisan tilt of the issue has changed a lot. So it used to be, you know, during the Obama years that Republicans would get elected saying that they were going to repeal and replace Obamacare. And uh, since President Trump became elected and since the Republicans actually tried to execute that plan, uh, we've seen public sentiment kind of move more in the direction of the Democrats and their message of either preserving existing benefits or, in many cases, trying to expand them and make healthcare, care, uh, you know, broader and more affordable for people. So in the 2018 midterm elections, uh, health care was a really, really central message for a lot of Democratic candidates running for Congress and I think in many cases helped them win in uh, districts where Republicans had held the seats before. And now we're seeing health care really front and center in the Democratic primary for the 2020 presidential election.
1: Absolutely. And I'm curious, have there been any changes to the Affordable Care Act during the Trump presidency, or has it largely m- remained the same?
2: So I would say like the big picture stuff is the same. So the Affordable Care Act is this big piece of legislation It did a lot of things uh, Congress has not been able to do very much to take away those things with one exception. But when you have a big piece of legislation like that. The executive branch, the Health and Human Services Department and the White House have some authority through regulations to kind of interpret various parts of the law. And so what we've seen under the Trump administration is that they have interpreted certain parts of the Affordable Care Act a little bit differently than the Obama administration did. And so some of the changes that they've made have affected uh, the way that these programs function. Many of them have been criticized by Democrats as being like a quote-unquote sabotage, as trying to undermine the Affordable Care Act by giving people the opportunity to opt out of coverage or to buy coverage that isn't subject to all the same consumer protections that the Affordable Care Act requires. But the Trump administration also did something that turned out to really help uh, the Affordable Care Act. They it's very complicated, but they took away a form of subsidy. And by doing that, they actually ended up making insurance a lot more affordable for low and middle income people. So it's been sort of a mixed bag. There have been some modifications, but I would say, the really big pillars of the law are still intact.
0: Okay. So what are the main plans that are on the table right now? Can you take us through the, the their different frameworks and kind of talk about which candidates support which plans?
2: Yeah. I, I did a story. I don't know if this is helpful or not, but I did a story a couple of months ago where um, I talked about the U.S. healthcare system as being like this old, weird house. So if you like, <laughs> imagine a house and there's like a bunch of different wings that are all been added on and they have like slightly different architectural styles. You know, you've got like a little modern wing over here. And you've got like some weird tents on the roof, um, and the house is like a little rickety in places, or maybe a little bit leaky. I think that's a good way of thinking about the way that our healthcare system works right now. We have all these different programs that cover different groups of people that have sprung up separately and that have different rules that govern them. And so, the way that I like to think about it is that there are sort of two main categories of health reform proposals that we're seeing from Democrats. One is the sort of fixer-upper kind of plans that are basically going to take that house and pass the leaky roof, put some energy efficient windows in, and maybe put on a big extension in the back so that more people can live there. And then there are what I call the sort of tear-down plans, which are, let's just get rid of this existing system. It's too weird and incoherent, and let's build our dream home. And so the sort of fixer upper plans, the kind of most mild version of it, I think, is the one that Nancy Pelosi and Democrats in the House have been talking about, which would expand some subsidies to make insurance more affordable for some people, fix some little technical problems, uh, and reverse some of those policies that I talked about that the Trump administration did that they think are undermining the structure of Obamacare. And then there are a lot of presidential candidates who want to do that stuff plus other stuff. And the main other thing that they want to do is they want to create a government-run insurance plan that will be available to lots more people, and people could decide whether they want to buy that plan or buy the kind of private insurance that they have right now. So th- those plans are sometimes called public option plans because it's public, it comes from the government, but it's an option. You can decide whether or not you want to buy it. That's like sort of the most uh, expansive fixer-upper plan And then the teardown plans are these plans that would essentially say, let's get rid of all the stuff we have now and let's instead build a system where everyone gets the same thing and we're going to design it in this really expansive way called Medicare for All or sometimes called a single payer plan. So those are plans where basically everyone would get their insurance from the government and it would be free. And... Uh, in all the leading proposals, you wouldn't have to pay anything when you went to the doctor. You wouldn't have to pay any premiums to buy your coverage. Everything would be covered by tax dollars.
1: Okay. And so when we talk about different candidates, who is on the Medicare for all side versus who is on the more moderate side? And then is there anyone who's just like,
2: we'll keep it as it is? So of the presidential candidates, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are the most vocal on the Medicare for all side. And then on pretty much everyone else is on the public option side. Cory Booker has been like a little bit unclear. He sort of has a little bit of a foot on each side. I think Andrew Yang is maybe a little bit more open to Medicare for All than some of the other candidates. But certainly Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are the ones who have been the most vocal about their support for Medicare for All, have been the most specific about how they would want that to work. And then a lot of the other candidates, uh, Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, um, they are all talking about these kinds of public option plans, where there would be a new government insurance program. People could choose to buy it, or they could choose to just stay where they are right now.
1: So, with the middle option, where we're kind of fixing up the house, we are fixing up Medicare. So it's not our current Medicare program; it's something that's slightly better. But then, you still, if you have your insurance through your work or you know somewhere somewhere private, you can keep that. Is that right?
2: Yeah, I think the way to think about it is that like all of the ways that we get insurance now would basically stay the same for the most part. So people who get Medicare would keep getting Medicare. People who get Medicaid would keep getting Medicaid. People who get insurance through work would keep getting insurance through work. Um, people who buy their own insurance could keep buying their own insurance from a private company. But basically, all of those groups would, with maybe the exception of the Medicare population, would also have the choice of going into this private, this new private plan instead. So they would have it kind of opt out Okay, stay where they are. They could go to this new option.
1: OK. And then what's the viewpoint from the Republican side? Is it just to repeal the Affordable Care Act and everyone for themselves on the private side?
2: Actually, really hard question to answer right now. You know, if we had talked in 2017, I could give you a really detailed accounting of what Republicans wanted to do because they brought forward bills that would have repealed large parts of the Affordable Care Act and replaced it with kind of new systems. Uh, but the reality is, obviously, those bills uh, did not garner the support of enough Republicans to become law. and since those failures, you just haven't seen the same kind of commitment by most Republicans to really talking about this issue, to advancing a new plan. Uh, President Trump keeps saying that he's going to have a new health care plan sometime soon. uh, But as is often the case with President Trump, sometime soon, uh, it often sort of uh, keeps increasing uh, further and further into the distance. So I think in general, what Republicans would like is they would like people to have more choices to be you know, what Obamacare does and what obviously a lot of these democratic plans do is they basically say, you know, insurance has to do the following things. It's a very heavily regulated product, you know, insurance has to cover a certain set of benefits have to have a certain set of financial protections. And I think Republicans would rather have an environment in which uh, private insurance companies have more opportunities to make different kinds of plans so that people will have more choice. Maybe they want a plan that has a super high deductible because it's cheaper, or maybe they would want to have a plan that doesn't cover mental health services or prescription drugs because they think that they are not worried about having those needs. So I would say that's one big difference. And I think another big difference is that the Republicans in general, I think, would like to have states have a larger role in designing their healthcare systems and the federal government to have a smaller one. So we hear some plans where basically instead of Obamacare spending money directly on health insurance, you would have a system where the federal government would give big blocks of money to states and then give them states some rules the states could decide how to use that money to give people health care in their state. But I, I do think it's a little bit of a weird moment for Republicans on this issue. Repealing and replacing Obamacare was such a defining political issue for them for so long, and they seem like they're much more in a muddle right now. They don't want to talk about it as much. They don't have some kinds of really specific plans.
0: Got it. So something that we hear a lot about is feasibility. So I think that we're curious, like, you know, how feasible is, like, tearing down this house versus – um you know, just giving it a few tweaks?
2: I think a couple of ways of thinking about that question. Like, one is just, like, the practical question, but the other one is the political question. And I think that's the one that a lot of people focus on. You know, when Obamacare came around, it did make some changes to the healthcare system, but they weren't huge. Obamacare was sort of a classic fixer-upper plan. Obamacare kept a lot of the way the health care system worked in the United States. And then I just tried just to, like, fill in some cracks, add some programs for people who weren't being well served by that system. And it really was, you know, self-consciously designed to disrupt as little as possible. And even so, it was just so enormously controversial because people really care about their health care. You know, they they're, it's important to their financial security. It's important for their health. And I think that there was just a lot of fear that any kind of changes might, any kind of disadvantage that might come from those changes could be really devastating for people. So we saw, for example, in the early years of Obamacare, some relatively small number of people had their health insurance plans canceled because they were not fully compliant with Obamacare's new rules. And that became like a huge story. Those people were really upset. There were hearings about it on Capitol Hill. Um, you know, So I, I do think it's a good reminder that uh, if you're going to make major changes to healthcare, there are a lot of people who may be upset about that because they're going to be scared of change. And the advocates for Medicare for all for some of these uh, new systems, they say, no, 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 the new healthcare is going to be so much better. Everyone's going to be so much better off and so much happier that they won't have those concerns. But I do think that that is going to be a political challenge to kind of convince people that it is worth sacrificing what they have now in order to get this thing that they're being told is better, but that it's hard for them to really evaluate in advance. And then I do think practically, you know, it's just really hard. I mean, you know, the healthcare system is really big. We're talking about a lot of people. There are a lot of like systems and decisions that have to be made. You know, what is Medicare for all going to pay doctors and hospitals? Like what kinds of prices is it going to pay? What kinds of services is it going to cover? Uh, How is it going to, you know, find people and, and get them, Uh, On a healthy track and those kinds of things, I think have not been as much considered by the candidates or even I would say by the legislative staff of people who have proposed these kinds of bills in Congress. I think it's much, much more focuses on the kind of structural, like here's how the insurance part would work. There's been less focus on like, how would the healthcare part work? And I think if we actually got closer to implementing one of those plans, there would be tons and tons of really technical seeming questions that would turn out to be really important and, you know, would take a lot of thought and debate and perhaps some controversy too. So going
1: back to the political side, though, I'm curious, how will the 2020 congressional races impact you know, what type of health care system we might get.
2: So I think, you know, one easy way of thinking about this is that Republicans, like I said, I'm not like totally sure what they could do if they could do anything at this point. But I'm pretty sure that they don't want to do these Democratic plans. They definitely don't like Medicare for all. They really seem not to like these public option plans very much either. They have declined to support more incremental plans that would sort of fix little problems with Obamacare. There's a bill from, uh, the House that passed that made some of those changes and the Senate has not taken The Republican led Senate is not at all interested in that. And so what I think that means is for a major piece of healthcare legislation to move under a Democratic president, probably you would need to there to be not just a Democratic House like there is now, but also a Democratic Senate. And because of these Senate rules that uh, allow for something called a filibuster, probably need not just a majority of senators to be Democrats, but 60 or more senators to be Democrats to really be able to do major policy change. And so that seems pretty challenging, you know, based on the way the legislative map looks for 2020. I think that there is some chance that the Democrats could retake a majority of Senate seats, but I think it's a pretty outside chance that they would take more than 60 seats in the Senate unless something really dramatic changed between now and then. So I do think that that is going to be a big political challenge. You know, these candidates are running on these plans, but when it comes time to pass them, they're going to have to convince their colleagues in Congress to come on board. They need to have the headcount, first of all, to be able to pass bills without Republican help. And then they need to get, you know, all the Democrats to vote for them. And we see, especially in the Senate, a number of senators who seem reluctant to go as far as Medicare for All who may not be enthusiastic about voting for such a proposal.
1: And I think I remember in the last debates in November, I want to say it was Bernie Sanders said that he would enact his healthcare plan through executive order.
2: Am I, am I getting that right? Well, he didn't say that. He said he was going to introduce his bill on day one. I don't think anyone thinks that they can do Medicare for all through executive order. I think there's some stuff that can be done uh, through the executive branch. Like I said, there are these changes to Obamacare that the Trump administration has done through regulations. And I think there are other changes that a Democratic president could make. And Elizabeth Warren actually has uh, uniquely put out a really detailed plan for what her regulatory agenda would be in healthcare, which it's probably too nerdy to be of interest to anyone but me. But like one of the things that she wants to do, for example, is she wants to change Medicare, the program for people over 65, so that it covers dental benefits. She thinks that's something that she can do without Congress passing a new law. So I don't know if she can do that. That's like a kind of tricky legal question. But I do think there's some things, things like that, small changes that maybe could be done uh, through executive authority. But certainly, you know, uh, Anything that involves new spending, anything that involves building new programs and bureaucracies, I mean, those are the kinds of changes that really do require an act of Congress. There is this weird process in Congress. Tell us about it. (laughs) It's called Reconciliation. Uh, and it's like this system that was designed in order to make it easier to pass budgetary items through Congress. And so if you are passing a bill that is like a budget bill through this reconciliation process, you can do it with just a majority of censors. You don't need all 60 of them. And so that's how Republicans, for example, passed the tax reform bill that they passed in 2018. They, uh, use reconciliation. Um, and that was how the Republicans were trying to do Obamacare appeal. So if the advantage of reconciliation is you can do it with fewer Senate votes. The disadvantage is that there are a lot of weird rules because it's supposed to be a budget thing. So there are certain kinds of policy changes that would be difficult to do through that process. Uh, it, I think it is reasonable to think that some of these public option type plans, like the kind of plans we see from Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg and others, um, could maybe be achieved through reconciliation. But it seems like full Medicare for all, the kind of Bernie Sanders Medicare for all plan would probably require um, a larger majority of senators to support. So
1: one thing I'm really curious about, I've heard a lot of people say, make an argument that Medicare for all is fundamentally not feasible, and that candidates are kind of pitching these very idealistic plans then the intention of, you know, being able to compromise and move them more towards the center, but like having room to move. So when we talk about Medicare for all, are we actually talking about that? Or are we just talking about something that's left of, you know, a system that includes a private option, but like not quite Medicare for all?
2: I think it's a really interesting question. You know, in 2016, in the Democratic primary, obviously, Bernie Sanders was running against Hillary Clinton in that election, and he really ran on Medicare for All. It was kind of the central policy idea of his campaign, and he obviously didn't win that primary, but I think he really changed the conversation in Democratic politics around this issue. Before 2016, there were always some people who supported Medicare for All, but it was kind of considered like a marginal sort of fringy view. And afterwards, we saw, you know, big changes, like in Congress in 2017, a majority of House Democrats uh, were co-sponsors of a Medicare for all bill. And the number of uh, co-sponsors on Senator Sanders bill in the Senate, you know, went from just a handful of people to almost 20. So we saw that like a lot more Democrats got on board with this issue. And we do see in public opinion polling that more of the public is open to the idea than they were before. So I think it's like always a little bit hard to predict the future. Like I said, you know, I'm sort of counting votes in Congress right now. I don't really count enough Democratic votes for this idea to really easily imagine it becoming law anytime soon. But I also think that part of what elections are about are about persuading the public and, you know, explaining your vision for what the future of the country should look like. And I do think that, you know, we've seen some movement on this in the last few years. And so it's possible that if these candidates make a good case and, you know, have a persuasive pitch. And if we elected an Elizabeth Warren or a Bernie Sanders who really wants to do this, maybe there is a better chance than I'm currently imagining that something like this could happen. All of that said, um, I basically agree with the premise of your question, which is, you know, probably we're not going to be doing Medicare for all anytime soon. And then I think it kind of raises these questions about why are these candidates running on this big idealistic dream house kind of proposal when they know that the chance of it becoming law is relatively small. And I think that really in part what they're doing is they're not just telling us about their policy preferences, but they're also telling us about their values. Uh, when you hear a, you know, politician like Bernie Sanders talk about Medicare for all, You know, he is talking about a kind of social solidarity, we're all in this together, a general sense of equality, no one's going to have something that's better than anyone else. And this idea that we should not have private business and government in the provision of healthcare, which, you know, he sees as a basic human right. And so I think he is expressing those ideas in addition to expressing, like, here's what the co-pays and deductibles would be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there is some evidence from public opinion surveys that these kind of sentiments about these kind of underlying values do seem to be shifting. And there does seem to be broader acceptance of the idea that healthcare should be a right, for example, that everyone should have it regardless of how much money they make. Uh, There seems to be really broad acceptance now for the idea that people with pre-existing health conditions should be able to get access to health insurance and health care. And these are kind of changes from the past when, you know, those sound like really appealing ideas, but not all Americans were on board for those ideas in the past. And so obviously building consensus around these values, around these ideas, maybe does make more political space to do other steps along the way to something like Medicare for all. Okay.
1: Okay.
0: Now, if it did come into fruition, how do you think that Medicare for all would affect the private side of healthcare? So talking about insurance companies, doctors,
1: employers. Have any candidates addressed that?
0: Yeah, I haven't heard that talked about in any of the debates. I might have missed it, but.
2: Yeah, so there was like a little discussion in the debates about what would happen to hospitals. I think like John Delaney said in the August debate, you know, like Medicare for all would like cause all these hospitals to close. Um, So, okay, so a few things. First of all, like, Under Medicare for All, not under the public option plans necessarily, but under Medicare for All, private insurance would basically be outlawed. You would not, private insurance would not be allowed to offer any benefits that are similar to what the public plan offered. And so that means, like, in terms of that business, if you have a job in private health insurance right now, you are not going to be working in that industry anymore. And so that is just, like, itself a big change. These are big companies. So the candidates that are proposing these bills actually know that Medicare for all would do away with all these jobs, and they actually have provisions to try to help people with job retraining and other kinds of financial support as they have to make a transition out of this industry. So that's like the most obvious effect on the private market. theoretically, questions about what
1: could some of those people go work for the government because the government would then have a similar role as a health insurance company? or would they fully yeah, I think would their jobs fully be not useful anymore?
2: I mean, I think these are some of the details of the plan that we don't really know, but yeah, I mean, the government has some people that administer the Medicare program now for people over 65, but you would assume if they're going to cover absolutely everyone, it's going to take more people. There are going to be more jobs doing that. I think it's also possible that a Medicare for all system might hire insurance companies to like do some like business processes for them. So maybe the government is providing the insurance and designing the benefits, but like, of billing and payment is being done by outside vendors and like those health insurance companies would become those vendors i mean they're definitely it's not like those people are going to be completely out of luck and with skills that have no value but we don't really know it's going to be a big change people are not going to be doing exactly what they're doing right now they're going to have to figure out what to do differently what
1: about doctors do doctors then just become government employees okay so this is important this is blowing my mind so
2: like so that would not be true under any of the proposals that are being talked about in the United States right now. The idea is that doctors and hospitals would stay private. Uh, you know, they might be nonprofit. A lot of hospitals are nonprofit, but a lot of doctors are just organized as businesses. You know, you have five doctors that work in a group together and they mm-hmm. share uh, their revenues. That would continue to be like that. There would still be potentially for-profit hospitals, although there would be more rules about them. Um, so it would still have this kind of private healthcare system, but... The thing about having the government be the only one that's buying healthcare services is that they are going to have way more control over what doctors and hospitals do and also on what they get paid. Because they can say, you know, instead of paying you $200 for this uh, visit for a checkup, you know, we're only going to pay $100. And instead of covering a checkup every year, like we're only going to pay for a checkup every other year. Now, that's just a made up example. That's not something that's in the bill. But you could understand why if you were a doctor, you might be nervous about having the government be in charge because it would mean that they could pay you less than you're being paid now by private insurance. And you wouldn't really have very much that you could do about it because there would be no other payer that could pay you more.
1: So is that why some doctors don't accept certain insurances because they don't get paid the
2: same by all insurances? Yeah. So every insurance company and every doctor's practice or hospital, they all separately negotiate for their prices. Oh. And a lot of times what happens is, yeah. So like, if you look like even the same hospital, the same service, they are looking at like an appendectomy at, you know, uh, Columbia Presbyterian Hospital in New York. The price that's paid by Aetna is going to be different than the price that's paid by United Healthcare. is going to be different than the price that's paid by Blue Cross. And that's going to be different than the price that's paid by Medicare. And it's going to be different than the price that's paid by the state Medicaid program. So we have all of these different prices in our system. And this is not always true, but in general, private insurance companies pay the highest price and the government programs pay a lower price. And so you can imagine like if everyone gets paid the lower price that Medicare gets paid, that would mean that doctors and hospitals would overall make less money than they make right now. And so you do hear some critics of Medicare for all saying that this could really be a catastrophe for the healthcare industry because you would see hospitals and doctors having to react to making a lot less money and maybe they wouldn't be able to run their businesses as profitably or at all. And I think it's like that's something to think about. And it's something that Congress would probably have to think about if they were going to pass a Medicare for all bill. They would have to think like, oh, like, what is an amount that we can pay these doctors and hospitals going to allow them to stay in business? But it's not so much that it's going to cost taxpayers too much money. Well,
1: let's talk about that. What would the tax impact be of a Medicare for all program? Would it necessitate raising taxes in some way?
2: It definitely would. So there are a bunch of different estimates about how much it would cost. Um, and they range a lot, but all of them basically suggest that it's going to cost trillions of dollars in federal spending a year on top of what we already spend, right? So the government already, you know, if you, uh, get paid a payroll, you pay, you pay a tax now that helps fund Medicare. Um, you pay other, you pay state taxes, maybe on your property tax that helps fund, uh, Medicaid. So we're already like paying taxes that go to pay for health care. And under Medicare for all, we would have to pay for all this new stuff too. The advocates for Medicare for all say, well, it's true that you would have to pay more in taxes, but right now there are all these other ways that you're paying for health care. Maybe your employer is paying a premium. Maybe you're paying some portion of a premium. Maybe you have a deductible that you have to pay when you go to the doctor or copayment when you get a drug at the pharmacy counter. And if you kind of add all that spending up together, it's not necessarily that different from what Medicare for all would cost. The big difference is that instead of paying for it out of all these different sources of funds, all going to come out of federal taxes. Um, But, you know, it's a big, big number. And. Bernie Sanders has not really specified exactly how he would raise all that money and has said basically that he doesn't have any immediate plans to do that. Elizabeth Warren actually has come out with a pretty detailed financing plan. I think there have been some criticisms of it for maybe like being a little bit too optimistic about how little it would cost. But she has a bunch of different taxes, many of them on corporations and, and then several on very high earning people. Uh, including, you know, she has a wealth tax that would apply to um, very high net worth individuals. Already under her Medicare for all plan, the wealth tax could be as high as six cents of every dollar of wealth for the, the most wealthy Americans.
1: So in her plan, it wouldn't necessarily be funded by taxes on the individual. It could be funded by taxes on other individuals or on corporations.
2: Yeah. So she has a design, you know, she has this line where it wouldn't raise one penny of middle class taxes. Okay. That's like a little bit of an oversimplification, but basically she tries to find sources that are not, there would be no income tax increase for uh, middle income people, there would be no p- direct payroll tax increase for those people. It would be paid for through these other taxes, some of which might indirectly affect middle class people, but none of which would like directly come out of their pocket.
1: And what would be the implications of the middle option of a public option? like would that require tax increases? Like what are some of the um, support or criticisms for that plan in terms of like how it would affect a private system or you know how it would affect taxpayers?
2: So in terms of taxes, it's definitely true that those plans are also going to require more federal spending, and so that's going to require the federal government to raise more money in the form of taxes. There are two big differences um, that make the overall bill for those kinds of programs a lot smaller. Um, One is obviously that we're just like going to keep people who are in, a lot of people who are in private insurance are going to stay there, and so they're going to be paying premiums to a private company. They're not going to be financed by taxpayers. Um, And also, it is going to ask people, even if they're in the private plan and they can afford to, it's going to ask them to pay for some of their care. So people who choose a public option plan would have to pay a premium to the government in exchange for that insurance. And they would also have to pay some money in the form of deductibles or copayments when they go to the doctor or the pharmacy. So there's kind of, you know some of these other ways that we pay for healthcare would continue to be the same. And so there would be kind of like a smaller increase in federal spending, a smaller set of tax increases that would be necessary.
1: Um, I have a very gritty example question. So if, yeah, for instance, yeah. I work for a company that offers insurance and I want to stay working for them, I actually don't. I have insurance from the New York marketplace right now. But anyway, assume I work for a company that I'm going to stay with their insurance plan. Would I still have increases to my taxes that would help to pay for other people's public health options? Or is it it opt-in where it's like you only pay increased taxes if you're taking advantage of a public option?
2: So we don't really know the answer to that question because no one has been very specific about exactly what taxes would pay for it. But I would say in general, you would probably have to pay a premium. So if you were going to buy a public option plan, say you said, I don't want to stick with my employer plan anymore. I want to use the government plan instead. Uh, you would be expected to pay something for that, same Mm -hmm. as you pay for your insurance now or your employer pays. So that's not really a tax, but that is like a cost to you. And then because the government plan under these these proposals would cover more people, more low-income people who maybe can't afford to pay and would also um, lower the amount that middle-income people have to pay, there would be like just some tax dollars that would just be going towards healthcare in that scenario that aren't going towards healthcare right now, and there's lots of different ways that you could raise that income. You could have a broad-based tax, you know, an income tax increase or a payroll tax increase that would affect even people who are staying in their private plans. Or you could have something more along the Elizabeth Warren financing mechanisms where they're targeted taxes just on high income people or just on certain kinds of corporations or business activities. And in those cases, they might not affect you really directly at all.
1: And with regards to the presidential candidates on the Democratic side, have any of them outlined kind of how they would structure or fund a public option plan?
2: Or is that largely
1: just not been aligned on yet?
2: So I think in terms of how they would structure the plans, there is a fair amount of detail from a few candidates. In terms of the funding, I would say it's like a little bit fuzzier. I think okay. their view is it's, it's not as much money. So there's like less pressure on them to say exactly how they would do it.
1: And who are the candidates who have very well-defined plans in the public option category?
2: So the two that I think are the most detailed are the plans from Joe Biden and from Pete Buttigieg. And they share a lot of similarities. Um, they have a couple of small differences that seem important. but basically, what they would do is they create this public option. Anyone who wanted to buy it could buy it. Um, they would automatically enroll a lot of people in the public option. So basically, anyone that doesn't have insurance now would be, and if the government could find you and tell you about it, they would try to get you to sign up. And then, for people who, go to the doctor and it turns out that they don't have insurance So say like, you know, you're in a car, someone's in a car accident and they go to the emergency room and they get to the hospital and they get treated. And it turns out that they weren't signed up for insurance. What these plans would do is they would retroactively sign them up. So they would give them a bill. Okay. Here's how much your premium is, but we're going to pay for your uh, emergency care. That's uh, my so worst and nightmare. then they're also going to make, <laughs> well I think it's like good though to have no it's great I ha- to have insurance in that situation
1: no her nightmare is the opposite it's it's being in that not getting enrolled in insurance like um oh, a, a few yeah. years ago I was yeah. in between jobs and somehow managed to not sign
0: up for insurance in time so I didn't have it and I like canceled my city bike I like didn't want to go outside I was like I'm gonna <laughs> get hit by a car I'm not gonna have insurance I'm
2: gonna be millions of dollars in debt so that's that's I had this experience right before I started working at the New York Times. I had one month off in between jobs uh, where I was taking a vacation, but I had no health insurance, and I tripped while I was running. No, like, I hurt my hand and had to like go get ex- and it turned out like it was totally fine. But it was just like I was like, of course, like I'm the healthcare reporter, and I have this like tiny little in coverage, and it's just like that's when I got hurt. So, oh yes, man, it everyone's worst nightmare, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Um I Unfortunately it wasn't too bad, but
1: I have a question. Where does Michael Bloomberg fall on healthcare as somebody who is apparently in this race now?
2: Yeah, I'm curious too. I don't really think he has I mean, I could be not up to date, but last I checked, he doesn't really have very detailed um proposals for a lot of policy areas. I think he's very much in this phase of kind of introducing himself to the public just as like a personality with a biography, but I don't think he has like a really detailed platform. So it will definitely be interesting to see what he puts forward. Um, I think of him as like being more moderate than some of these other candidates. And so I would be surprised if he goes as far as some of the plans that we've talked about so far, but um, I don't know the answer.
0: Okay. Okay. So wait, looking ahead to the next debate, if you were going to ask one question to each candidate, what would it be? Yeah, like what's the one
1: healthcare question that you haven't seen answered?
2: So this is like a slightly nerdy question, but I really think the question that I would like to see answered is, what if you become the president and the Democrats don't retake control of Congress? So like if you can't pass a big health reform bill, what are the things that you're going to do using your executive power? And as I said, like the Trump administration has done a lot of things. So they didn't just do the kind of Obamacare changes that we talked about, but they also are doing some really interesting policy around making uh, prices for medical care more transparent. So I talked about, uh, you know, all the different insurers that have different deals with the hospital. Those prices are all secret now. The Trump administration is using regulatory policy to make that all public so you can, like, see in advance what everyone is paying everyone. Um, and they're also just doing, like, a lot of stuff, a lot of regulations in women's health and other areas. And, you know, I do think that in the future, you know, with the country being as divided as it is, it's going to be harder and harder to pass these big healthcare bills through Congress. And so it's pretty important to know what the candidates would do through executive power and and whether they've even thought about that.
1: I think that's a very interesting question. Yeah, agreed. Well, I guess we'll end it on one more question I have for you. And I think I know your answer is probably to read the new york times but where are the places that people can go for resources to read more about health care like i i think the obvious answer is to go read the candidates websites but outside of that who's doing great coverage or who are people that people might want to follow on twitter or instagram like where where do you look to for the latest in healthcare?
2: care oh gosh i feel like i need a better answer for this question i so i am like a big advocate for health policy twitter um There are looks like an enormous number of really smart um, journalists and professors and analysts who talk about these issues in this kind of like very warm, friendly corner of Twitter that is like very different than politics Twitter. And I really recommend it. Um,
1: Are there hashtags or how do you find that corner? Just go look at who you're following on Twitter. I'm looking at you and you're following 1,500 people. Yeah, it's a lot of people. (laughs)
2: There are some... Think about this. So there's some Twitter lists that I follow but I don't know how to explain a Twitter list.
0: I didn't know there still were Twitter lists. I'm looking oh yeah there's lists. You can subscribe
1: to different lists. I don't know how you find one. You can also if if you have them, I don't want to give you homework, but if you want to you can give us like a list of five people as a follow up and we can put it in the show notes of like here's who Margot recommends. Okay. Yeah. For like five definitely and then good Twitter people.
2: I can definitely do that. And then just like in terms of news organizations, like obviously hard for me not to show for the New York Times. I think we do really great and thorough coverage of all these issues, but there are a bunch of other publications that I also think do a great job, um, including STAT, um, The Washington Post, ProPublica, well, maybe not ProPublica, but I see who else I want to recommend, Um, Politico, Vox.com, and then, you know, a really great resource for a lot of stuff. It's actually like one of the first stops for me on almost any health policy question is the website of the Kaiser Family Foundation. So Kaiser is like, they're not affiliated with Kaiser Permanente, the insurance company, but they're a nonprofit research group and they study a lot of healthcare policy stuff. And they put together all these really great resources that allow you to research various proposals. So they do like summaries, like kind of point by point summaries, like there's the stuff in the Affordable Care Act, there's the stuff in these various proposals. And then they also just have a lot of facts about how our healthcare system works now, like how many states do this or that, or how much money is spent on this or that. So I really recommend their website. It's a really good resource too.
1: Oh, interesting. We'll have to check that out. Um, Margo, I can't thank you enough. You've been such a wealth of knowledge. I learned so much this episode. Can you (laughs) tell people where they can find you on the internet if
2: they would like to keep up with you? Yeah. So my main recommendation is find me on Twitter. So I'm at SangerCast. It's my last name, but with no hyphens. And then I also, if you Google my name, you can see there's like a page on the New York Times site that has all of my articles. Amazing.
1: Great. Can't wait to go dive into those now that I have the background. Same. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you guys so much. This is so fun. Oh, good. Thank
1: you for doing this.